Let's do that. Let's just pray. Oh, Father, we just thank you again for your word. And we, we know, Lord, that you're not limited by anything. And, and so, Lord, we, we welcome and embrace even the, the, the petty trials, Lord, that come. And, um, and, Lord, we just lift before you this service and this time, this study, and this passage of truth. And we ask you, Lord, that you would take it and that you would bend it, Lord, that you would cause us to hear your voice in it, and that we would see ourselves through its lens, that we'd see you in a fresh light, that we would have a vision for eternity and our purpose here now. And so we thank you, Lord, in advance for what you want to do and what you're going to do tonight. And so we're just asking you, Lord, to bless this service. We know that you will and that you have. And it's in Jesus' name that we ask. Amen. Well, the book of Genesis, as you know by now, is the book of beginnings, the book that tells us of our origins and where we came from. And the book divides itself into two unequal sections. The first section is chapters 1 through 11, which describe to us really the origins of the universe and the origins of life. And that first section divides into four categories. There are four events that are highlighted in chapters 1 through 11. First of all, the creation, which gives to us kind of the history of where all things material come from. The second is the flood, I'm sorry, the fall. Uh, The fall of man, which really gives to us the origin of sin and explains to us the world that we're born into, why it's fallen and why it's broken. Thirdly is the flood, which tells us the origin of kind of the cataclysmic chaos that we see as we look around the world and and wonder why is there a geological column? Why are things crooked and bent the way they are? And it just explains God laying that for us to answer some of the, the, the scientific questions that we might have. And then finally, fourthly, is the Tower of Babel, which explains to us the origin or the beginning of language and culture. And so those four events marking those first 11 chapters of Genesis describe the origins of just those simple things that God knew that we would need. The second section of the book of Genesis is from chapters 12 all the way to the end of the book. And the second section divides itself not into four events, but four personages or four characters, and it describes to us the origin of redemption. And so the first character that we followed was the man Abraham. And so God laying out and giving us the origin of where the nation of Israel would come from, the nation through whom God would bring the Savior, the Messiah, into the world. That was then followed by the second character, which would be Isaac, the son of Abraham, and God giving us his history that we might understand that his redemption would be according to promise, Isaac being the son of promise. Then the third character that we studied was Jacob, and the purpose for Jacob's uh, presence and story in the scripture is the development of the nation, the 12 tribes that would become Israel that ultimately Christ would come through, giving to us the foundation of the lineage, how he would come into the world. And then finally, fourthly, the fourth character that makes up the final section of the book of Genesis is Joseph. And the purpose, uh, the, the, the large picture purpose for Joseph's story is that we might understand how Israel ended up in Egypt why they were there to develop as a nation before they would come in and possess the land that God had 
promise to Abraham. And so that really is the breakdown of the book of Genesis. And so tonight, as we cross into chapter 37, we begin studying that last segment, the eighth of the eight sections of the book of Genesis, the life of Joseph, this man. Now, these chapters in this section, this segment of the Bible, is probably one of the most beautiful stories, not just in the Bible, but that ever happened in the history of mankind. If you take the the, the story, the historical narrative of what happens in these chapters, and someone were to just write a fictional story uh, that, that, that had these characters and this drama and all of the elements that are inside of it, it would be one of the greatest stories ever told. And the fact that it isn't fiction, the fact that it's nonfiction, that these things actually happened the way the scripture lays it out for us, makes it indisputably, at least in my opinion, the greatest story, aside maybe from uh, Jesus Christ and the redemption that, that came through him, you know, the Bible as a whole. But s- apart from that, probably the greatest story that's ever been Uh, ever been told. Amazing thing. Now, dramatically, this story, if you just look at the contents of it, it touches every area of the human heart. There's envy, there's conflict, there's tragedy, betrayal, guilt and remorse, vice and virtue, there's redemption, perseverance, faith, hope, final victory, a happy ending. I mean, it just, everything that we resonate with and and love is, is in here. Spiritually, This story, this segment of this man's life, Joseph, it reveals beyond any measure that we've seen thus far in the Bible with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Noah, or any other that we've seen, it reveals the involvement of God in the lives of his people way beyond anything else. How carefully he leads, how carefully he loves, how carefully he guides and protects his calling upon our lives. Now, from a human perspective... What we gain from studying the life of Joseph is that we see God in his ways and his whys. Why does God do the things that he does? And it gives us instruction, insight, and hope. But from God's vantage point and why he laid this out the way that he did is in his mind, first of all, that we might have a picture of Jesus Christ. And we'll see probably more than anybody else in the entire Bible, how Joseph is a picture or a type of Jesus Christ. Now, when you read Acts chapter 7 in the New Testament, which Acts chapter 7 is a sermon that was preached by a man named Stephen, and he was just speaking to the Jewish nation about their rejection of the Messiah. And he reaches back into the story of Joseph, and he says, hey, you guys don't understand this, But Joseph was a picture of Christ in that he was rejected by his brothers, Israel, the tribes of Israel, in his first coming. And then they were shocked at the revelation of his lordship in his second appearing. And so Joseph is a picture and a type of Christ. And so just as Jesus said that all of the scriptures serve the purpose of testifying of Christ. We see in Joseph a picture of Christ probably more perfectly than any other person in, in the Bible that we can see. I think somebody said there was over 70 ways that you can see Christ 
in the life and in the ministry of Joseph. And many of those will point out and see as we go through his story. The other reason God placed this in the Bible is so that we would understand how his nation, the sons of Jacob, ended up in Egypt. And that's a critical component in terms of our understanding the history of how God developed the redemptive process. And so this story gives to us all of that and much, much more. The themes that we'll see as we study the life of Joseph, the things theologically and spiritually that we'll gain an understanding of as we study this passage of Scripture is, first of all, the sovereignty of God. And if you're taking notes tonight, you just might want to write these things down so that you, you know, are mindful of them as we go through the story. But first of all, the sovereignty of God, that he knows all things that are going to happen before they happen. Not only does he know them, but that he is actually the one that is orchestrating and making all of these events take place. That he actually manipulates the actions and decisions of people to serve his purposes. And we're going to see that very clearly illustrated and lived out through the lives of his people in this segment of Genesis. Another theme that we study in this uh, segment of Scripture is the theme of destiny. That God has a predetermined destiny that he desires his people to walk in. One of the favorite verses that we often have as Christians, I know it's one of my favorite verses, is Romans 8.28. For we know that God works all things together for good to those that love him, to those that are called according to his purpose. That God is able to take everything that happens in and around our lives and he's able to bend those things and work them in our favor according to his will that we might serve his purposes and find ourselves in the place that he wants us. Another favorite verse that many of us have is Jeremiah 29.11, the one where God says, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil. And King James is important here. It says to bring you to an expected end. Now, most translations say a future and a hope, and I, I like that too. But it means in the language expected end. End, meaning that God has a destination, a destiny where he's bringing his people. The New Testament confirms this in yet another favorite verse of ours. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, where the Apostle Paul says, For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, that that is the gift of God and not by works, lest anyone should boast. And then he goes on to say in verse 10, for we, you and I, are his workmanship, his work of art, his masterpiece, created, listen, in Christ Jesus for good works, unto good works, that we should walk in them. In other words, we have been predestined by God to fulfill a purpose that he has established before the beginning of time that we should now live out what that purpose is. There's a destiny. And then, of course, another favorite verse that I read to you at the opening of our service. It's Isaiah chapter 54, verse 17, where God says that every weapon that is formed against you will not prosper. 
And what that means is that even if someone or something tries to subvert or divert or deflect or ruin or sabotage the calling and purpose of God that he has for his people, that God is able to take those things, listen, and actually make those setbacks a vehicle that drives us to our destination. And we're going to see that illustrated in the life of Joseph beyond anywhere else that we see it in Scripture. We're going to see that everyone is trying to ruin the call of God that this young man has on his life, and yet at every single turn, God is going to trump those actions, and he's going to actually use them to equip and set Joseph up unto the destiny and the calling that he has for him. So destiny, a huge theme in the segment of Scripture. Another theme that we'll see in this is the theme of providence. Providence, and what that literally means, um, you know, when we talk about providence, providence is uh, the, the way that God supernaturally leads and directs and causes events to unfold, but he hides them behind the natural circumstances of our life. And so God uses naturally occurring things that are actually his leading and his will, the providence of God. And it's really one of only two ways that we see God moving in people's lives when it comes to the way that he leads us. We see God doing it through the miraculous And the miraculous is when God actually changes natural law and manipulates common circumstances and he goes through the back door to accomplish his will. That's, you know, a healing or an apparition or a vision or something miraculous that takes place in some way that that God shows up on things. But the other way, which is far more common and in my opinion far greater, is providence. Providence is God using the natural things that happen, and yet behind it we see that he's the one orchestrating and making it happen. And here's why I prefer providence to the miraculous. Because the miraculous, in my estimation, and I'm not being irreverent here, but the miraculous can sometimes be a little bit cheap. Because the miraculous is easy. I mean, you can, if you're God, you can do anything. The Bible says, is anything too hard for me? God says, I'm the God of all flesh. I can do anything. And in one second, God could do anything. He could make the stage disappear. It just, he could, and that would just be miraculous. And a lot of us say, yeah, I wish there was more of the miraculous. Listen, the providence is greater. And here's why. Because when God moves through providence, it shows that he is intricately involved in even the smallest details of our lives in order to set things up like dominoes so that things unfold in a very particular, specific, and calculated way. And the providence of God that we experience in our lives shows his level of intimacy. Miracles are easy. That's like a parent just throwing money at at you. They have no involvement in your life at all, but when you need it, they just give you a thousand bucks. Now, you know, as kids, we like that. But as we grow older, we appreciate much more the involvement and and the other things are secondary. And providence is the involvement of God in our lives. And there's no other place in scripture that we see the providence of God. Now you say, how do you recognize providence? Words like, oh, it was a coincidence or it just so happened or it was happenstance. All of those things are providence. God setting things up 
calculated, specific, on purpose to carry out and bring out his will. And we're going to see that happening in this life. The fifth or fourth uh, theme that we'll see is the theme of perseverance. And, and specifically, that is persevering in trials and in suffering. Uh, the life of Joseph is going to reveal the reality of the place that suffering and trials have in the life of God's people, and it gives sense to those things, why they take place, and why it pays for you and I to persevere and not quit in the face of trials and adversity. And then finally, the fifth theme that we'll see in the life of Joseph is the theme of redemption and hope. That God is never through, that the story isn't over, and that all things actually do work together for good, and that no matter where we find ourselves at whatever stage of the journey, we have hope that God is going to come through and that it's going to work out in the end. So what's the summation of all of this by way of introduction is that in this life of Joseph, this glorious story and picture, we see God using and shaping the events in the lives of his people First of all, in the big picture, to orchestrate his grand plan for salvation. So the big picture of God's whole creative purpose is unfolding and being uh, performed throughout these lives. At the same exact time, in the slightly smaller picture, we see Jacob's family and the forming of the nation. At the same time... We also see in the slightly smaller picture, God working in the individual lives of the people that are involved, including Joseph's brothers, including the Pharaoh in Egypt, including Potiphar and his household and the people that are affected by the famine. We also see at the same time in an even smaller picture, the involvement and orchestration of God in Joseph's individual life how he's being prepared, how he's being taught, and how he's being blessed as God is raising him up. And all of these things, from the big picture all the way down to the micro of the individual life, we see God flawlessly, harmoniously, and simultaneously executing these things with perfection. And what it becomes for us is a testimony to the sheer size, ability, goodness, and trustworthiness of God. And thus, the story of Joseph is one of our absolute favorites. Now, by way of a disclaimer, I am not looking at this scripture, these scriptures, from the perspective of the dramatic. And what that means is this just big spoil alert, spoiler alert. Okay, I'm not going to build it up. It ends good for Joseph. He becomes the prime minister, second most powerful man in the whole thing. If you want the drama, then read it on your own, or there's a movie, and it's real good. It's called Joseph. It was produced in 1995. It's got Ben Kingsley in it, and it was uh, directed by Roger Young. That's the version I'm talking about. Rent it, watch it, it's your homework, it's over three hours long, it is impacting in its depiction, and it's accurate in its biblical nature, at least as much as can be done in that way. It's probably the most phenomenal thing, you'll cry, you'll get the whole dramatic thing. So get, get the Ben Kingsley, 1995, directed by Roger Young, you'll love it in the whole thing. So without further ado, <laughs> let's get into the text of chapter 37 and begin seeing 
what takes place in Joseph's life. It says in verse 1 that Jacob dwelt in the land wherein his father was a stranger in the land of Canaan. Now we're going to find out a little bit later on in the text that Jacob is at this point living in Hebron which was the place where Abraham spent the majority of his time. It meant strength, and it was just a place in the land. And what's being given to us here is is just the understanding that the scene is taking place in the land of Canaan where God had established and told Abraham that he's to be. Now, we're also going to see that his sons, the 12 boys, that they're scattered throughout the whole countryside. Some of his sons are in Shechem. They then move to the area of Dothan. And they're just kind of going through the land. And they've got the flocks of Jacob with them where they're going. But we see the people of Jacob are kind of in the land. They're in the place that God had called them to be. We're told then in verse 2 that these then are the generations of Jacob. That Joseph, being 17 years old, was feeding the flock with his brothers And the lad was with the sons of Bilhah and with the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives, and Joseph brought unto his father their evil report. And so we're told that at this time, Joseph is 17 years old. And it's important for the story that we might have perspective as to his age and insight and also for dating that we might understand when uh, certain things happen. And we're told that at this particular time that he is with four of Jacob's other sons, that is, the sons of the handmaids, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of, uh, of uh, Zilpah, which would be Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And, and thus, we begin to see the dynamics of the unfolding drama. Because what you have here is you have the son that is the most favored and the most highly exalted, the son of Rachel, Joseph, with the four sons that are the most inferior and the least esteemed, those would be the sons of the handmaids. And so you already kind of see that there's there's the potential for tension between these half-brothers, if you would, that are all there and they're watching the flocks together. Now, that drama intensifies and comes into the light when we hear and we find out that Joseph then comes back to Jacob And he tells Jacob that these four boys are not doing the job correctly. He brings an evil report. He says, Dad, they're not doing things the way that you would do things, the way that you've taught them, the way you would expect, the way that is right for the flocks, and uh, something needs to be done about this. So Joseph brings an evil report. Now, the drama intensifies even more in verse 3 when it tells us that Israel, that is Jacob, loved Joseph more than all his children because he was the son of his old age and he made him a coat of many colors. We're told that Jacob loved Joseph more than all of the other boys. And the reason that we're given for this supreme affection that Jacob has for Joseph has nothing to do with his personality, his intelligence, his competence or his abilities or anything about him uh, that, that would be in his person. It is simply the fact that he's the son of Jacob's old age. Any of you that are grandparents in here, you might understand a little bit of what that means. You know what it's like. I know what it's like to be a young parent and to have young children. 
and you don't even know who you are yet, and now you've got to take care of other people. And you don't know how you're going to take care of those other people. You don't know how to take care of another person. You don't know how to take care of yourself, you know. And it's intense, and it's crazy, and you don't want to screw up, and you're trying things, and you're experimenting with parental methods on these lives that God has entrusted to your care. And then you kind of get through that, and you mess them all up in your attempt to be the perfect parent, you know. And then you come into your older age, and now you have grandkids, and you've got it all figured out. Isn't it amazing how God has orchestrated and and ordained things to happen in this life that once we figure out how to do something, we don't have to do it anymore? Right? That's, isn't that how it is? We, went, we all went through high school. We didn't know how to go through high school. Once we graduated, we had to figure it figured out. But we're done. We don't have to do that anymore, you know? And, and it's like that with parenting. So you become a grandparent, and now you relax. And so you spoil the kid's rod, and you go, it don't matter what we do. They're going to end up like they're going to end up, you know, or whatever, whatever, you know. But now Jacob has had 10 other sons... And he's getting on in years, he's got some experience, and now comes Joseph, the son of Rachel, and he's, he's in, a, in a more relaxed position. And, and he, he sees, he has this relationship with Joseph, and there's a dynamic in it, and that he's older, that he didn't have with any of his other sons. And so because of Joseph's position, the fact that he's younger, and Jacob is older, because of that, there's a love that Jacob has for Joseph that exceeds the love that Jacob has for all of his other sons. And what we're going to see is that that dynamic right there causes anger, hostility, envy, jealousy, problems with all of the other sons. Now, what I love about this, just breaking away from that for a minute and just considering us, considering our relationship with God, is that Joseph, right, Joseph has the favor of Jacob for no other reason other than his position, son of his, his old age. That's it. In other words, the other brothers can do nothing to sabotage that. They can't behave better and win Jacob's affection. They can't be smarter or more intelligent or more inventive. They can't be more affectionate. There's nothing that they can do to become what Joseph is and to have what Joseph has because Joseph's relationship is based on his position. And you know why I love that? It's because that's the way that God loves us. God loves you and I because of our position. What's our position? We're positioned in Christ Jesus. We come to him by faith. Paul said to the Ephesians, he said that we are in Christ. He uses that phrase over and over and over again. That's our position. And because of our position in Christ, we have the favor of God and the love of God is guaranteed. It's it's upon our lives. And there's nothing that we can do to improve it. Being smarter isn't going to change the love that he has for us because he doesn't love us because we're smart. Being better people isn't going to change his love for us because that's not why he loves us. He loves us because we're in his son, Christ Jesus. And I love that dynamic. Joseph's brothers are jealous of him because they can never be in the position that he is in. And so we see that unfolding in the dramatic uh, here. And we're told that he's given a coat of colors by his father, which was an indication of his future prominence, that one day it would be Joseph, uh, Jacob was setting up to be the one that would be the chief and prominent heir. 
We're told in verse 4, it says that when his brethren saw that their father loved him more than all of them, it says that they hated him and they could not speak peaceably unto him. Jacob's love for Joseph resulted in hatred that was grown out of envy. They were jealous of Joseph and therefore they hated him. And one of the things that drives all of the drama that we're going to see for the next 13 or 14 chapters is this envy that these brothers have towards Joseph, their younger brother. Envy is an, is an amazing dynamic that exists in the fallen human condition. It's an amazingly powerful emotion that can cause a lot of damage and do a lot of harm to people. And envy, it's funny, it has a funny progression Envy does, when we find it in our lives or, or when a person has envy. Envy always begins with a sense of unfairness. Somehow, I, I'm feeling that I don't have something that someone else has that I want. In fact, the definition of envy is when a person, uh, it, it occurs when a person lacks another person's superior quality, achievement, or possession and either desires it or wishes that they lacked it. Isn't that a good definition? They, they either wish they had what the other person has, or at least they wish they didn't have it. You know? And envy always begins with a sense of unfairness, that somehow God has dealt to another person a greater measure or a better measure than what he has given to me. I have in some way been overlooked. I've been treated unfairly. Now, God's answer to this in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12, he says, listen, guys, he says, they that compare themselves among themselves are not wise. We're not to look at what someone else has and to think, well, God, I wish I was what they were or had what they have or could do what they could do. That he says that we're unwise when we do that. Why? Because we know that God is just and we know that God is good. And that God has dealt to every man according to his goodness. And God is not unfair in what he gives. He just doesn't do everything the same way in every person's life. But envy always begins with a sense of unfairness. It then progresses to a place where there are accusations or slander because of the proposed or, or seemed injustice. And so, just as we're going to see in the lives of these boys, they're going to begin to hate Joseph and to slander and speak evil of him, uh, calling him names. That's the next step. It then envy will always progress to a place of depression or frustration because uh, they feel that the desired attribute or the thing that they want is beyond their reach. I can't have the thing that I want. And so there's this frustration that comes up inside in a depression. And that will ultimately end in a sour disposition and some action of hostility towards the one that's being envied. Uh, and so there's this progression. Envy kind of becomes bitter and then envy feeds on that bitterness. And thus one person said that envy is one of the greatest causes of unhappiness in the human condition. And there's absolutely truth in that. And, and, and we're all prone to it. None of us is beyond the ability to be jealous of someone or envious of, of, of a position they have or, or gifting or an opportunity or a life or whatever the case might be. So what's the solution? What do you do when you find yourself envious of a person? The answer is given to us in the New Testament book of James. 
James says this in James chapter 3. Uh, verse 13, he says, Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you? Let him show out of a good conversation or lifestyle his works with meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter envying and strife in your hearts, then glory not and do not lie against the truth. And then for the next chapter and a half, he gives insight as to how to deal with the emotion of envy as it comes up. And I'm not going to go through this. This isn't a study in James. But essentially, if you read chapter 4 and chapter 5 of the book of James, he'll say that the way that you deal with envy is, first of all, through prayer. James chapter 4, verse 2, he says, You lust and have not, you kill and desire to have, and you cannot obtain, you fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. Listen, if there's something that you desire and you feel it's in the hand of God to give it, then ask God for it. Ask him in faith. He then goes on to say in verse 6 of the same chapter that he gives more grace which is why he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands and purify your hearts, you double-minded. And so after we pray, the next thing is that we're to take and bow into a place of humility before God. And that's a way we deal with envy, is that we come to God, and we say, God, I'm thankful for what I've got. And here in my heart, I'm, I'm upset because I don't have what someone else has. I don't even deserve what I have. And when we begin to recognize what we do have and give thanks for it, we're in a place of humility and we're in a place where God is ready to shed grace upon us. And then he says thirdly in that same passage that we're to submit to God. What that means is this. It's surrender. It means, God, I'm going where you're leading, and I want my life to be what you've made my life to be. I want my cup, and I want my portion, not someone else's portion. And that's submission. That's surrender. It's trusting God that he has and knows what's best for me and that he's going to do what's best for me. And then in chapter 5, if you read on through the passage, same context, the last way that James tells us to deal with envy is in verses 7 and 8, where he says, Be patient, therefore, brethren, for how long, you say? How long do I have to be patient? He says, until the coming of the Lord. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to take that long, but it means that's to be my attitude. The Lord, if it takes until you return or until you call me home for things to unfold and for me to understand why things are in my life the way they are in my life, I'm going to be patient and trust you that long. He says, behold, the husbandman or the gardener waits for the precious fruit of the earth and he has long patience for it until he receives the early and the latter rain. Be you also patient. Establish your hearts for the coming of the Lord draws near. Grudge not against another. Brethren, lest you be condemned, behold, the judge stands before the door. Don't be jealous of other people. It does not have good effects and it will never be productive in your life and it will never lead to happiness. It is the number one way to be unhappy is to be envious. On the other side of that coin, there's a great verse in Proverbs. It's Proverbs chapter 27, verse 4. And it says this. Listen carefully. It says that wrath is cruel, right? And anger is raging. But who can stand before envy? And what that verse essentially means is that if you're one, 
and God has blessed you in some way, and you use that blessing with the motivation of trying to make someone else jealous of you, not very wise, not a good idea. It's better to have someone want to kill you than it is to try to make someone else jealous because the actions that unfold because of envy are bad. And so we see in this life of, of these, these brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably unto him and all of it due to their envy, as we'll see when we get to verse 11. Well, now uh, Joseph's dreams. Now we add insult to injury. They already don't like him. And it says that Joseph dreamed a dream and he told it to his brothers and they hated him yet the more. And he said unto them, Here I pray you this dream which I have dreamed. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and lo, my sheaf arose and also stood upright. And behold, your sheaves stood around about and made obeisance to my sheaf. Now that's really wise, Joseph. <laughs> hey guys, I had this amazing dream. We were all gathering our harvest, and my harvest was way beyond your harvest in prominence and quality. It was so great, the fruit of my life, that the fruit of all your lives and all your possessions bowed down and paid reverence to mine. It was so good. Best dream I ever had. Isn't that great, guys? Verse 8, and his brethren said unto him, shall you indeed reign over us? Or shall you indeed have dominion over us? And they hated him yet the more for his dreams and for his words. And so what they already saw beginning to take shape in the wearing of this coat and the favor of their father, now they hear it out of Joseph's mouth being spoken to him from God. And the hatred and the jealousy grows and the seed of sabotage is sown. Shall you indeed reign over us? It ain't going to happen. We'll see to it. And it says that they hated him the more so because of his dreams. There was great esteem placed on dreams in those days. When someone had a dream, it was seen to be a revelation, a vision from God. And I'm sure they believed him when he told them this dream. And part of their anger and frustration towards him was the fact that he was having these dreams, that God was actually speaking to him. Not only did he have favor with Jacob, he had favor with God. And so they hated him because of his dreams, and they hated him because he said it, because he spoke it for his words. And then he dreamed yet another dream and told it to his brothers. And he said, Behold, I have dreamed a dream more. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars made obeisance to me. And he told it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said unto him, What is this dream that you've dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow down ourselves to thee, to the earth? So Jacob understood the implication of the dream that Joseph was having. By the way, as an aside, this little dream of Joseph's and Jacob's response to it is the key to understanding Revelation chapter 12 when we see a woman clothed in the sun, the moon at her feet, and a crown of 11 stars on her head. You have to know this passage to understand who's being spoken about in that. So just might want to write that in your margin, Revelation 12. That doesn't have anything to do with the narrative, but it's good to know and understand. 
Jacob says, are we going to bow down to you too, your mother and, and, and your, your sons, or your, our sons? And it says that his brothers envied him. There's the jealousy. But his father observed the saying. Though Jacob rebuked Joseph for saying it and implying it, yet he tucked it into his mind, into a place to say, I'm going to watch and see what unfolds from this. Jacob practiced something here that I think it's wise that every single one of us practice. What's that? Is that we all should have a file somewhere in our brain, in our mind, that's labeled, wait for more information. And when you hear something that either you don't understand, or maybe you don't like, you know, concerning the things of God, or that doesn't make sense, or that seems contradictory to something else that you know is true, you put it in the file that says, wait for more information. And I'll tell you what's going to happen, because it happens for me all the time. I love that file is that you're going to hear something on the radio or in a Bible study, or you'll read something in your devotions that's going to be the missing piece that makes sense of the thing that you didn't understand or didn't like. And then you'll be able to take it out of that file and put it in the place where it goes. Oh, yeah, this God is good. Okay. And I can put it, put it, put it there. You know. So, Bill, if you don't have one of those files, build it. It helps so much because we all have things that we don't understand. You know. So Jacob observed the same. Well, now the unfolding consequences of envy, dreaming, hatred. It says, His brethren went to feed their father's flock in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, now I want you to mark that it uses the name Israel there and not Jacob. Every time Genesis refers to Jacob as Israel, it's an indication that he's in the spirit, that he's being led by God, that he's where he's supposed to be. And that's important for this. Because what this means is that God is the one that's putting it in Jacob's heart to send Joseph where he's sending him. So Israel said unto Joseph, Do not your brethren feed the flock in Shechem? Come, and I will send you unto them. And he said to him, Here am I. And he said unto him, Go, I pray thee, and see whether it be well with your brethren and well with the flocks, and bring me word again. So he sent him out of the vale of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a certain man found him. And behold, he was wandering in the field. And the man asked him, saying, What are you looking for? And he said, I seek my brethren. Tell me, I pray thee, where they feed their flocks. And the man said, They are departed hence, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. And Joseph went after his brethren, and he found them in Dothan. Now, this is the beginning of the providence of the leading hand of God through circumstances. Joseph comes to Shechem, where his brothers are reported to have been. He can't find them. He doesn't know what to do. He doesn't ask any questions. And so he's found wandering in this field. Well, the man just happens to see him there and say, Hey, who are you, and what are you doing here? And Joseph responds and says, hey, I'm looking for my brothers, you know, about, hey, hi, violent guys. They have a reputation here in Shechem. They've, they've made a name for themselves here. Do you know them? Have you seen them? And the guy goes, oh, yeah, I know those guys. And they've gone to Dothan. They left here and they went to Dothan. You say, well, what's the significance of that? Well, Shechem is kind of in the middle of nowhere. It doesn't have any significance or bearing on any place or passage. But Dothan just happens to be 
on a route called the Via Maris. Now, you've all probably heard of the King's Highway. It was the main trade route that went from Egypt all the way up along the coast of the Mediterranean up into Syria. But right around where Mount Carmel is on the Mediterranean Sea, there was an offshoot that shot over to the city of Damascus in Syria, which was a major hub even then. And Dothan just so happened to be along that route, which would be a route that people would take in their passage to Egypt and in the commerce and economy of those days. And so the brothers go to Dothan. Joseph is guided now to go to Dothan. And we'll see what happens as he arrives there. By the way, Joseph, being a type of Christ, he's sent by the Father to the sons to see how they're doing. He'll be rejected and thrown into a pit. Joseph, a type of Jesus Christ. It says in verse 18 that when they saw him afar off, even before he came near unto them, they conspired against him to slay him. And they said one to another, behold, this dreamer comes. Do you hear the voice of Satan in there? The destroyer of dreams. Come now, therefore, and let us slay him and cast him into some pit. And we will say some evil beast has devoured him. And we will see what will become of his dreams. And Reuben heard it, and he delivered him out of their hands and said, let us not kill him. And Reuben said unto them, Shed no blood, but cast him into this pit that is in the wilderness, and lay no hand upon him, that he might rid him out of their hands to deliver him to his father again. Reuben looking for redemption, if you remember what happened in the last chapter. And it came to pass, when Joseph was come to his brethren, that they stripped Joseph out of his coat, his robe. Sound familiar? his coat of many colors that was on him, and they took him and cast him into a pit, and the pit was empty. There was no water in it. Jesus, stripped of his robes, thrown into a tomb, it says specifically, wherein no man had ever yet been laid. And it says that they sat down to eat bread, and they lifted up their eyes and looked. And behold, a company of Ishmaelites came from Gilead with their camels bearing spicery, balm, and myrrh and to carry it down to Egypt. They happened to be along this trade route, the Via Maris. And Judah said unto his brethren, What profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother and our flesh, and his brothers were content. Then there passed by Midianites, merchantmen, and they drew and lifted up Joseph out of the pit, and they sold Joseph to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. You say, ooh, that's close. That's right. You say, Jesus was sold for 30, not 20. Well, Joseph ain't Jesus. And it says that they then brought Joseph to Egypt. And Reuben returned unto the pit, and behold, Joseph was not in the pit. And he tore his clothes, and he returned to his brothers and said, The child is not, and I, whither shall I go? And so they took Joseph's coat, and they killed a kid of the goats, and they dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors, and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or not. And he knew it. And he said, It is my son's coat. And he jumped to the pessimistic conclusion 
that an evil beast has devoured him, Joseph is without doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes, tore his clothes, and put sackcloth upon his loins, and he mourned for his son many days. How cruel of these boys for 22 years they're going to let their father believe that Joseph is dead, that he's been slain by a lion all the while. They know that he's alive, and they're going to let Jacob mourn. And all his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted, and he said, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Can you imagine what it was like to be Jacob in this instant? To think, why did I send him? If only I had kept him at home and hadn't sent him that day. And the regret that must have filled his heart. I had a taste of this again this past Monday. Um, I got up early with my oldest three, Hosanna, Rocky, and Sarah. And we went to this place not far from where we live. It's called the 909 area. And we, you know, we like to run. You know, we always looking for places to go. And so, you know, we heard there's 909 acres, state land filled with trails you know, let's go there and go jogging. Now, we go there, and we all kind of run different paces. You know, Rocky's like lightning, you know, and, uh, you know, everybody kind of goes different things. And so what we did is I just gave everyone a phone, you know, and I said, just come back in an hour, you know, and we all just took off running. And so I go, and I do my thing, and I come back. And Hosanna is just got back right before me, and then I came back. And then we waited a little while, and then Rocky came, you know, and then we waited, no Sarah. We waited, no Sarah. We waited, no Sarah, no Sarah, no Sarah. So I thought, okay, well, she's got George's iPhone, so let's hit her with the Find My iPhone and see where she is. And so we pull her up on Find My iPhone, and we see that she's right smack dab in the middle of this 909 acres, and we're watching her. She's just running in circles, like just running in circles, running in circles. And, I, and I'm going to myself and going, thank God that I brought these phones, and what an idiot I am to send my kids into this wilderness, you know, and I'm, and I'm starting to think, like, I'm the world's worst father, you know, <laughs> like, doing these things. Long story short, she was fine, you know, she, she got a really good workout that day, <laughs> you know, and, uh, you know, we went in and, and got her, and, and, you know, it worked out great, and nobody, she wasn't even scared in the whole thing, but I was thinking, you know, what, what if, you know, and here's Jacob now, and he's asking those questions, saying, what if, or if only I had? What if I had not? And he's feeling the weight of this. But it says, the closure of the passage, it says that the Midianites sold him into Egypt unto Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh's, and a captain of the guard. Again, the providence of God in the man that bought Joseph. He happens to be the captain of Pharaoh's guard, meaning the one that oversees the whole entire prison system. And you'll see why that's significant and why it plays in. So as we, as we draw things to a close, what is Joseph's current state in his life and in his calling and the thing that God has planned for his destiny? What we see in, in Joseph right now, at 17 years old, is that he has a very definite calling of God. He has a destiny, he has excitement, ambition, he has drive, he has a sense of God's favor, he's hearing from God and he has a vision for the future, he has all of these things going for him. What Joseph lacks at age 17 is people skills, very definitely. 
He doesn't know how to handle people. He lacks a lot of wisdom and discretion as it comes to ordering his affairs and letting people into his life. He lacks management skills. We see him just kind of wandering around a field, not knowing what to do when he's sent out on a task, and he lacks these things. Concerning the calling that we know that Joseph ultimately has, we see at this point in his life, listen, he is completely unqualified and unprepared for the thing that God is going to use him to do. And thus what's going to happen in Joseph's life moving forward is that God, who initiated this calling and has called this young man, that he's going to prepare and qualify Joseph for the future that he has predestined. God always prepares his people for the thing that he has for them later on in their life. He's extremely faithful to do that. And it takes as long as it takes, and it takes whatever it takes. And for Joseph, it's going to take 13 years and a whole bunch of pain, but God is going to give to Joseph the things that he needs in order to succeed in the calling that he has for him. Sometimes the things that we go through while God is preparing us for our future are extremely difficult. They're painful. They're troubling. There's trials. They're hard. And we all can say amen to that. But can I tell you that there's something harder than the trials and the pain that we go through in preparation. You know what that is? It's coming into the position or the place that God has ordained for us and not being adequately prepared for it. That's hard. Way harder than the the time of preparation. And thus God is going to do what it takes. It requires faith, patience, trust, and surrender. And God is going to do it. How is God going to get an unskilled, unwise, indiscretionate 17-year-old to be the second most powerful man in the world in a 13-year period of time. Well, we're going to see as we continue on uh, through through the life of Joseph. The musicians can come uh, as we close the service out, but I ask the question just by way of application as we close. Where are you tonight in the plan, the calling, and the destiny that God has for you? Do you understand that if God called you, if you belong to him, that he has an expected end for you? There's works foreordained that you should walk in them. And God is committed, willing, able, wanting to prepare you and to lead you in the necessary ways so that you're ready when those times come. And I want you to understand something. as You just consider where you're at tonight with God. That to be unprepared when the time comes that God wants to use your life is to be unsent. What does that mean? It means that you can miss it. It means that you can come to the end of your life and you can find yourself in a place where you never fulfill the thing that God called you to and the thing that God ultimately willed and prepared, prepared your life for. The Bible says in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30, God said, I sought for a man to stand in the gap and to make up the hedge between me and the land, an intercessor, that I should destroy it not. You know what he said? I found none. Meaning that God was looking for someone to fulfill a specific cause. And when he looked for that person, he couldn't find that person. 
And so do you know what he did? He destroyed the land. He didn't use a person in that position because he couldn't find one. And, and I wonder, I wonder how many people are going to stand before God on that day and God's going to say, look what you left on the table. This was the calling. This was the plan. And because of a lack of trust, because of a lack of, of, of waiting, a lack of going through the difficult things, I think there's two sad things that can happen to a human life. Number one is to come to the end of your life and to have not accomplished the thing that you wanted to accomplish. But what's even worse is to come to the end of your life and to have not fulfilled the thing that you were made for, the thing that God created you for. And none of us need ever be in that place. If God's given you a dream, if God's given you a gift, if God's given you a place, surrender completely to Him. Say, God, whatever it is that you have to do in the next months, weeks, years, to prepare me ultimately for the thing you made me for, Lord, I want to be in it for the long haul. I don't want to be discouraged because of the trials. I don't want to quit. But I want to see it through that I might obtain. Father, we just thank you tonight as we close out this beginning of studies in this most extraordinary lives. And we ask you, Lord, that you'd help us to see our lives through the reflection of its lens. And we ask you, Father, that you would help us, that we would be equipped, that we'd be filled, that we'd be given vision we would have such hope and trust, confidence in you, that we wouldn't turn aside, that we wouldn't lay down, oh God, but that we would find ourselves in that place that you've called us, made us for. So help us, Lord. Thank you for this tonight. Thank you for laying these things out before us. Give us wisdom. Give us help. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together.